Welcome to Screw the Stock Market. On this show, we discuss a variety of alternative asset classes, tools to help you unleash your money, a success mindset, and inspiration to see what's possible when we do things differently. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Screw the Stock Market. Today, we had a really good guest, the Reverend Dwayne Quamina, and um, it was awesome. It was really inspirational. What do you think, Aziz? It was, I mean, I was going to say it's. it was a movie, but <laughs> it might just become a movie. Uh, he goes over his life story, and it is it is quite dramatic uh, from his beginnings to where he is right now. I mean, it had all the elements of every major blockbuster you've seen and heard about. So I'm I'm very excited uh, to see that when it comes out. So oh, yeah. he said Jamie Foxx might even be involved, maybe, or was originally, yeah. but... I'm trying to get on that red carpet, man. It's going to be good. <laughs> um, but 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 to give folks a overview, the the episode basically discusses uh, the Reverend's uh, life at the beginnings, and now his new initiative uh, coming from Hongbill Beginnings. He's trying to create a revolution in the mortgage industry, basically creating a new company that essentially offers. Um, mortgages with less barriers and less restrictions and discrimination for minorities and people of color. Um, it's supposed to be a completely revolutionary, revolutionary way of processing loans that takes away a lot of those systemic uh, biases that exist in the modern banking sector. So it's really exciting stuff. And it's in the early phases of raising capital now. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it'll go live soon uh, at some point so people can take advantage. Yeah, it's really cool. And I mean, I think what's another really cool thing about this is that this connects to an episode from a few weeks ago when we had Oscar Joffrey on the show. Oscar actually introduced us to the, uh, to the Reverend and um, he used Oscar's platform to create his crowdfunding uh, platform to be able to raise the money that he needs to start on this, on this uh, really beautiful journey of solving... Uh, or, you know, improving the, the housing crisis. So um, I love the connection there because, uh, you know, last time we talked about that and this guy is a great example of it. He's really looking to solve real problems in a very innovative way. As someone who's very familiar with the Fannie and Freddie guidelines on who qualifies for a loan and who doesn't, it seems a little bit arbitrary sometimes. I think it's important, but it is just arbitrary. And if he thinks he can do it in a different way and get support from, from lots of people, then he's got free will to just go ahead and do it. And that's the thing that's really exciting about it. So this is an inspirational episode. And then we, we get kind of tangible on solving a really big problem with discrimination and racism in the system for housing. So I hope you guys get a lot of value from it and enjoy the show. Thank you for tuning in. Hi there. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. You know, we work really hard to create a lot of content that is educational and informative. And we also want to be the best listeners out there. We want to understand what you are interested in, what kind of investor you are, what your objectives are. And so we've created a survey at screwthestockmarket.com slash survey. And there you'll be able to take the quick survey and we'll be in listening. And that'll help us be able to create better content and we can engage more about how we can help you achieve your goals. So again, screwthestockmarket.com slash survey.
Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Screw the Stock Market. This is the show where we talk about um, investing and building wealth outside of the traditional 401k and the stock market and those traditional investment vehicles. And we really focus on getting control of our wealth and control of our assets with the goal of taking control of our lives and our futures. And so we talk about all things non-traditional investing, but uh, today's episode, I think, is going to be really exciting. It's going to be more along the lines of inspiration and empowerment. And we are really honored to be um, to have as our guest today the Reverend Dwayne Quamina. Uh, Reverend Q, we're excited to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, welcome to the show. <laughs> so, Reverend Q, um, you know, normally at the beginning of the episode, we try to focus a little bit more on the personal because everyone has a different starting starting line when they start off in this life. And it's very common for people to come on and say, oh, yeah, I'm so awesome. I did everything. And 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 what I really um, we always try to give people a little bit of room to talk about their failures, their challenges, the times that they messed up and they were able to get up and wipe themselves off and start over again. And um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing with us just a little bit about your early life and how you got to where you are today. And I'm really excited for this because you have quite a story. (laughs) Well, it goes back. Hi, everyone. Reverend Duane Quamina. I'm in the Philadelphia marketplace and uh, uh, such a pleasure meeting uh, Alex and Aziz. And um, thank you for inviting me to uh, participate and share. the company that uh, we formed, a group of us, and uh, moving out on is called I Have a Dream Home. And that's to provide 13 million mortgage ready home buyers who are going underserved in America with the opportunity to uh, get into the home ownership through uh, mortgages. And uh, we pr- provided a platform for that. Um, so that we can start addressing the bias and racial discriminations that have permeated the mortgage industry. It's still relevant today, still prevalent, still going on. As a matter of fact, most of the big banks have gotten out of the mortgage business altogether. But we'll talk about that. But just as a, a stepping stone uh, to to how we how I got here uh, to bring uh, this opportunity forward, um, I'm a movement child. My father was the director of direct action and nonviolent education for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Reverend James Luther Bevel. Uh, he directed all the important movements of the 1960s. And um, I call him my adopted father. My biological father is Alfred Quamino, uh, who passed away some years ago. But Dr. Bevel came into my life. I was a young man uh, going on a journey when I met him. And the journey I, I was on was kind of on the dark side. And um, when I was a young man, I was in the third grade, the FBI raided our house. And they raided it because my father owned all the clubs, all the gambling joints, ran all the numbers in the neighborhood. The FBI raided the house to come in and find the numbers racket and break up his operations up in Rochester, New York. It got so deep that the mafiosa came in and tried to take over the territory, blew up his car, right after he got out and went into one of his clubs. Um, so I was brought up in that type of environment and I had a strong mother who loved us, but at the same time, my father was getting money and doing great things and I was seeing this. And um, 
So my life kind of took a turn. Uh, 17, I opened up a nightclub, me and my brother. And um, then I decided I, I had enough of the crazy life and went into the military, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not where it, where it ended because the, the elements that I grew up in allowed me to, to see some things that I shouldn't have probably seen. Um, and then my journey before Dr. Bevel came and pulled me out of the muck and the mire, I was involved in the largest heist in the history of, of America, Brinks and Wells Fargo heist. And I say this because I want people to understand that it's not where you begin or where the middle of your journey is, it's but where you end up at. So back here, FBI raised the house, opened a nightclub, going to the military. They put me out the country of Germany for 10 years for distributing heroin, okay? I was in the German confinement facility for eight months. Muhammad Ali helped get me out. That's gonna be in the book and in the movie. Then when I came back to the United States, I got into the muck and the mire again. I was involved in the largest heist in the history of America, Brinks and Wells Fargo heist, as I said, quarter of a billion dollar heist. We were taking a plane with all the money in the cargo bins that was going from Atlanta to New York. And that's where they shipped most of the money. We had a person come out the trunk, a contortionist, in the middle of the flight, take all the money, put it in our bags, and put all the confetti from our bags back into the Brinks and Wells Fargo bags, close up, get back in the trunk, land in New York, and off we go with the loot. So that's documented. Um, and I was found guilty of that. Uh, then I moved on into cocaine and became a warehouse up in Rochester, upstate New York for the Manhattan Cartel. So I was warehousing cocaine. That's also documented. Going to be part of the movie as well. So I was doing all these crazy things. Um, and then Reverend James Bevel, I watched him on the TV program, director of the civil rights movement for Dr. King. And he said something and he reinforced it when I met him. He said, how will anybody know you ever lived? And I said, well, I have a death record, you know, birth certificate. He said, that doesn't do it. He said, go back in your family lineage and tell me the lineage of your family. And I could only go back so far. And he said, well, why can't you keep going? And then he asked me some names. Do you know who Dr. King is? Mahatma Gandhi, Frederick Douglass, you know, Sojourner Truth. And I said, uh, yes, 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 yes. And he said, you know why people know who they are? Because they left a record. And that's how people know you lived. And he says, so young man, if you come through here and don't leave a record, nobody's gonna ever know you lived. And that stuck with me. And so I decided that I wanted to change my life. And I remember all the money I had, I took care of the whole neighborhood. I'm involved in drugs. I'm, I'm doing crazy stuff, right? When I left to come and serve Dr. Bell and serve the church and come to Philadelphia in 1992, all the money I had, I went and I gave it away. Came to Philadelphia with no money in my pocket, no food. And he said, go knock on the door at four, uh, Mount Oliver Tabernacle Baptist Church, 40th and Lancaster Avenue. Knock on the door and ask for Reverend Marshall Lorenzo Shepherd Jr. And tell him that I sent you and tell him you come to serve. And that's what I did. Didn't have a home, didn't know where I was going to stay. And I knocked on the door at the church and they called Reverend Shepherd. He came out and I says, I came here to serve. I'm, I don't have any place to stay. 
don't have any money. And he says, well, I don't know how I'm going to help you, young man. <laughs> and he says, well, what made you come to the church? And I said, Reverend James Bevel told me to come knock on the door. He said, okay. He called a man, Mr. James Ellaby. He came and picked me up, took me to a nice home out in West Philadelphia, put me up. Next day, they gave me a car. The next day, I was serving the church and we went to work. So that was my sojourn, and I came through those, those and Dr. Bevel, when, when, when I went to Philadelphia, he said this, he said, I generally don't work, and he said Negroes. He said, I generally don't work with Negroes. And he said, because they don't know the difference between thought and opinion. And he said, so I don't even know if I want to really work with you. He said, but I tell you what, you go over there and sleep on the corner, and on the floor in the corner over there where it was raining in this building, and he said, and I'll come back in about a year. And if you're still in the corner, I think about working with you. Well, I went and slept in that corner. And he came back, back about nine months later. And Reverend Shepherd, he asked Reverend Shepherd, he said, he been sleeping in that corner? And he said, yeah, even though he had a nice bed over there with Mr. Allaby, he said, he been in that corner for nine months. So Reverend Bevel said, hmm, I can work with this young man. He came and slept on the floor with me for four consecutive years and got up every morning at four o'clock in the morning, got on the whiteboard and started teaching me the science of nonviolence and how they transcended the debilitating circumstances that were happening during the 1960s and brought about the changes, the right to vote, the Chicago open housing movement, to open up public housing, freedom rides, to open up public transportation and the science of it and how the mind and how they took the theology of Jesus, Jesus Christ and combined it with the United States Constitution and forged ahead and beat the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And I said, that's a powerful science. I said, I have to know it. I have to teach it. And that's what changed my life and got me into service work. And then in my service work, oh, man, I did so many things. I, I became, without a law degree, I became the director of a law firm. Ali Law, but even before Ali Law, I ran a Jewish law firm for five years, Richmond Berenbaum and Associates. I started practicing law without a license. And, <laughs> and I didn't know I was practicing law without a license. I was just helping and doing civil rights cases and filing complaints, writing them, you know, challenging the police, Walt Disney, everybody. And the head Supreme Court Justice of, of New Jersey called me, well, the head federal judge in New Jersey called a hearing and they wanted to see me before them because somebody said I was, Walt Disney said I was practicing law without a license. So they called me in and they said, young man, you've been practicing law without a license. And I was like, well, I just thought I was helping a friend. The guy was in his car. Somebody ran into him going 80 miles an hour. He got vertical, couldn't function. And I was at the law firm. I just kept it going. I thought I was just helping a friend. And the judge said, that's practicing law without a license. So I didn't know. And so they told me, and the judge did a funny thing. He went like this, took his glasses off and said, winked at me, put his glasses back on and said, I'm proud of you. Don't do it again. Get out of here. <laughs> Sent me on my way. And I became the executive director of Ali Law. I don't practice law without a license. I do do like what 
paralegals do like kind of write and so on and so forth. Lawyers have to look at it, sign off on it, make it right, so on and so forth. So um, I got into law. I got into engineering. Um, I was working at A Valley Engineers and um, didn't have a license for engineering. Started working on engineering stuff and started going after the uh, PSCNG that was taking charge in the Navy a whole bunch of money for electricity and the ships weren't even in dock. So we did a, a, a study, a feasibility study on the dock to find out where this electricity was going, et cetera, et cetera. That got me into to the engineering and, and investigative mode. And then I started seeing the FBI come around. And next thing I know, I'm doing a forensic analysis on the explosion of the USS Cole in Yemen that killed 17 sailors. So I wrote a report on how that explosion, the characteristics of the explosion, uh, because they said it was a missile, but yet the f materials and the metal was fatigued outward, which means it was representative of, of an inward explosion that went outward. So I wrote that report. I started filing key TAMs. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm meeting with the FBI every other day and they're coming into the office and we're doing this report. And then I sat back one day and I said, I'm working with the FBI. <laughs> I said, and they don't think I know it. <laughs> and so it, it, it was a beautiful thing. Louis Vanazzi used to come down all the time. God bless his soul. He passed away. I met Manhattan Jack, who was the head FBI guy for New York. And um, I, I realized that the FBI and the IRS, they're not our adversaries. They're our advocates. And because I learned the science of nonviolence with my father, and the principle in the science of nonviolence is the science of government that you have to know what it is, why it is, and how it works. So you can't be on in the United States of America and not, not know government, not know the mechanisms, not know how to forge and make change within the system by which you live and that you function in. So nonviolence was all about making intelligent decisions within a system that was touted to be discriminatory and against Black folks because the Constitution uh, said black folks were three-fifths of a man, and, and, and they might be, according to my father. He said, but I'm not a black man. I'm a man in the image and likeness of God. And the Constitution says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's the pillar I take. I don't take black. I don't take white. I take a man in the image and likeness of God, and I'm part of the Constitution. So you talking to me. And he said, even though Europeans might have wrote the Declaration of Independence. He always said, a broken clock is right twice a day. So when they wrote the Constitution, they might have been wrote, broke, but they were right twice a day. And when they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. If you stand on that principle and don't back down, they can never put you less than because now they got to argue that you're not a man. And that's the science of nonviolence. Science of nonviolence is the standing on the Constitution and the theology of Jesus Christ. And the theology of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, Dr. Kingdom taught it. I'm only one or two people in the whole United States that has Dr. King's curriculum. Uh, me and another gentleman, uh, Yesi Yahuda, out of, um, uh, he's in Colorado now. But this curriculum teaches the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Principal Theology, Church Work. Thy kingdom come, or the sociology government work. 
Give us this day our daily bread, work ecology, business work. Forgive us as we forgive health psychology, clinic work. Lead us not to temptation, life biology, homework, but deliver us from evil, knowledge, anthropology, and schoolwork. So when the Lord's prayer was to open up your intuitive drive, because every problem, question, issue, and need you ever have is answered in one of the institutions, church, government, business, clinic, home, or school. So once you understand that mechanism in the prayer life and what you're living, if you take the highest position in there and hold it to the constitution and the theology of Christ, love your enemy, do good to those who despitefully use you. If someone smite you and the other cheek, turn the other. Do not resist evil with evil. Nobody can defeat you in the court of public opinion. And then when you make a motion, you have to make a motion in the interest of everybody, not just yourself. And if you have a problem, you're 51% of the problem. So take your 51% out and you don't have a problem. Those are all pillars of the nonviolent education and philosophy. So when you use that, like Gandhi and King did, you can run the British out of India and you can end segregation discrimination in America. Not only can you do that, you can apply it to every facet of every institution, church, government, business, clinic, home, and school, and be the premier authority in all of them. So the last thing I'm gonna say is that in my plight, getting educated and going into that realm, going into city councils, fighting for different things, I have never lost a vote in city council using the strategy. So how could a guy who at three years old was involved in a raid by the FBI, father's Cadillac got blown up, uh, was in German prison, was in federal prison in the United States, was in the largest heist in the history of America, was housing uh, cocaine for the Medellin cartel and all this, all of a sudden have a Damascus Road experience and change his life to now be in a service mode, to being an activist, uh, chasing after civil rights complaints, running a law firm, and now building this company called I Have a Dream Home to make sure that everyone in America who has the ability to own a home and wants to own a home can stop being discriminated against and, and denied access to capital, which will allow them to carry out one pillar of institutional or wealth generational wealth building. Because one of the pillars is owning your home, having a business is a pillar, investing, um, and also working and developing capital that you can then purchase a building. So you have to have these pillars and access to them. Be denied access is un-American, and uh, we don't stand for it. And um, now that I have the tools for this side, I can speak to a community that generally can't hear the preacher because they don't want to hear Jesus Christ. They want to hear love, truth, righteousness, and justice. And then you give them milk and then you can bring them to Christ. But you got to bring them and get them where they're at, bring them along and be an example as well to say, if I can do it, I don't want to hear nothing that you can't do it. Anybody can do it. So that's my plight. I came, I learned some things, and now I'm applying these things, and I want to bring this home ownership opportunity to the 13 million mortgage-ready home buyers, according to Freddie Mac, who are qualified to get mortgages in America but can't get it because of bias and racial discrimination by the banking industry and the mortgage industry altogether, using credit scores as denying factors, which when I went to Freddie Mac and Freddie Mac, I said, and everybody knows it, credit scores are used to deny people, not to give mortgages. Have an 800 credit score. 
I make $60,000. I want to buy this million dollar house. And they will say, your credit score is good, but we can't give you the mortgage for this house. Why? Because your debt to income ratio doesn't give you a, and qualify you to have a million dollar house. But I have an 800 credit score. <laughs> no, but you don't have to make enough money. But I have an 800 credit score, but you don't make enough money. Then what the heck is this credit score? It's used to deny folks. Everybody has a ding on the credit. So now you come and you have all the money in the world. You got a good income. You can live where you want. You're paying $2,000 a month for rent and you want to get this house. The mortgage is going to be $1,500 a month. And you go to get a loan and they said, well, you got this blemish on your credit score. You got this blemish. So therefore you don't qualify. You can't get a mortgage. But I make all the money in the world. Yeah, but you have this blemish. You don't qualify. But I make $10,000 a month. But yeah, but you got this blemish. You don't qualify. And it's like, oh, so that's the purpose of credit score. So in our model, we eliminate credit score. And um, so that's another story. But I just stopped right there for now. You know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And I'm here to show folks another way in which to create generational wealth. And that's through I Have a Dream Home. And I'm sure Alex and Aziz, they've been teaching for for years. And they they, they showed a lot of um, uh, people how to... Uh, do anything besides just thinking about the stock market and going to schools, but using your God-given talents to create opportunities that have been inbred in you by God to deliver the goods and services that you already know you can deliver. And and creating opportunities is definitely the the main theme of your life right there, because I mean, with all of those stumbling blocks, you you went above and beyond to create multiple opportunities for yourself. And now you're trying to pass down to other people. So that's I commend you on that. And that is an amazing accomplishment and an amazing achievement. And I also want to go back to you said you said that this is in a book and an upcoming movie. Uh, yeah. Is that true? Because if it isn't, it definitely should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At first, I thought you were kidding. But then as I was like, no, no, he's not kidding. I think this is real. I think they're going to. Well, so the manuscript is already done. Uh, there's a few things. It's, it has to be put in the script form and chopped and made into a movie. But I've had folks read it already. It's already done. Um, and they said this is this movie is like matter of fact, one guy who, who has a movie company and uh, they would they knew Jamie Foxx. They were going to get Jamie Foxx to play me. And of course, you know, some things happened with Jamie over the last uh, few months. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And they said, Jamie Foxx, yeah, let's call Jamie Foxx. And I was supposed to get on the phone with them and Jamie Foxx to see if he was interested in portraying this crazy guy. And um, it didn't happen, but it will it, uh, eventually. The, the, it's in it's in form, and uh, they love the story. They love the they they love it because even like when when I was in the third grade when the FBI ran into the house. I was playing the violin in school and I used to hide behind the trees. I was embarrassed because I had a violin, a little black kid with a violin, right? So I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm hiding behind the trees. But anyway, that day when they charged in, they knocked the violin out my hand and it's, things went up and it crashed to the floor and my violin got broke all up. So that's like, that's like the beginning of my story because I had a grudge ever since that day against authority. They broke my violin. <laughs> you know, and um, and it took me on the journey to all these crazy experiences that I had, uh, that grudge. And then next thing you know, you know, I'm in I'm in the um, A Valley Engineers 
and I'm working on the exposing the USS Cole, and here's all these FBI guys, you know, you know, and I'm working with them. I'm like, that's, you know, when did that change? You just come full circle, yeah. full circle. Exactly. Oh, cool. No, that's 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 a cra- I mean, there's no way that can't be made into a movie because that I was engrossed the whole time. I couldn't. I forgot even to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> just listening. Yeah. <laughs> And one one occurred to me when you were talking about the the contortionist because that is straight out of Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, they stole that from yeah. you. Oz is a real story, so if if you put my name yeah. in the Google search, it's gonna come up. <laughs> and it's Amazing. like, but well, but again, you know, I work with the the um, one of the Supreme on the justice on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, Lee Solomon. He used to be the Camden County prosecutor, and then he became the United States uh, Attorney General for the Attorney General for the Southern District of New Jersey. And when I first came to Camden, New Jersey to, to work, I went to his office and I told him just what I told you guys. I told him, I said, look, I was there, da, 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 da. And he said, nobody ever came in my office and said nothing like this. He said, young man, as long as you, you are in this town, nobody can mess with you. <laughs> so he's the one that invited me to start going into the prisons and talking to the, to the inmates and then when he got the office over in, in the federal building over there as the United States Attorney uh, General for the Southern District, um, he gave me a little cubicle up there where I used to go in and, and chase down the um, the guys who were taking advantage in the secondary market and taking people's money, trying to sell BGs and MTNs, because I went after that you know business model. And I said, these are all scammers. And I got perturbed and uh, you know I got pissed off. And I said, okay. I'm going after those guys. And so I went to Lee Solomon. He said, look, we got to do this, do this, but you're welcome to go over there in the corner and go to work. And so I went over there in the corner and started going to work. <laughs> now, 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 coming from a legal background myself, how were you able to get into a managing position at a law firm not being an attorney yourself? I mean, did you just start the law firm or they just, they just liked what you'd done in the past? Or, I mean, how did that happen? Because normally... They're going to want another attorney up in there managing the Well, place. what happened was the, the young lady who started the law firm, I hired her. I hired her when I was at the Jewish law firm. So remember the guy got hit with the car 80 miles an hour. He was out. And uh, all the lawyers that he had in the, in the law firm, uh, he, he fired them all when I came on board because they were sitting around. They weren't doing nothing but collecting paychecks. And I didn't know the difference. Uh, he likened me to a Mexican because I was coming in and I was working, 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 working. At, and these guys was like, stop it. <laughs> you know, you're showing us up. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just doing what comes natural. And I showed them up so bad that he realized they were just taking paychecks. He fired them all. So when he fired them all and everything, um, I was just, then I, next thing I know, I had all this burden on me. And, and then when I had the burden on him, he got hit by the car. And now I got more burden on me. So I hired the young lady out of Florida. I did interviews and I hired some college students from Temple. And we came in and we was tearing up the law firm. We was, we was making it happen. And that's when I got called in for practicing law without a license. And then um, when he came back off of his injury and came back, sorry to say, I had all these black folks in the office working. <laughs> <laughs> not because of the color of their skin, but by the content, but because of the content of their character. And they were working and we was killing it and he didn't like it. And he started going off. And I told the young lady, I said, go start your old law firm on my cases. When you get going, I'm coming over there. 
she went and I got her office in Center City, Philadelphia from another law firm I knew. They gave us a free office for 12 months. She started going in there. Then I pulled all my cases, brought them to her. And I said, we started looking through the books and what we going to call me over here. And they opened up the new position in the law firms that you didn't have to have a law license called executive director. So I was like, I take that one. So I became the executive director of Ali Law. <laughs> That's how it happened. Wow. Amazing. You know Amazing. Well, I want to give a little bit of time to um, to discuss the mortgage um, situation, the, the housing crisis. Uh, as a realtor myself, I felt the big difference in, in, over the last, maybe maybe since COVID, I'd say, is when I first really started to feel it about how there just wasn't enough housing to begin with. There's just not enough supply out there, especially at the affordable end of the spectrum. And then um, that's been the part that I felt the most, but I'm really interested in hearing from you about um, the ways that discrimination and how um, how people are being denied access to homes, not only by supply and demand, but also by... Uh, I don't even know what I would say. What, what would you call it? It's just exclusion. I mean, I don't, I don't even system. know what else to it's Yeah, The systemic racism. <laughs> and it's, um, it's prevalent. Um, all you got to do is look it up and see all the attorney generals have started suing uh, the big banks and, and um, Ben uh, Crouch, Crouch over in California. He's, he's suing in California. And um, uh, so it's going down. Uh, uh, our governor... In, in Pennsylvania, I say I'll go in Pennsylvania because I'm New Jersey, Pennsylvania, so I'm I'm, too, I'm a dual state citizen. <laughs> but the governor for Pennsylvania, um, uh, Josh Shapiro, uh, he was the attorney general. He just sued Wells Fargo last year. They settled for ten million dollars on the discrimination bias lawsuit. Um, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, they all. But but and they released articles. They said we're not doing this anymore because the federal government won't work with us. They won't let us continue to rob people. They came and they making us report and they have uh, made us return all this money we took with these $35 overdraft fees against people who are one cent overdrafted. Now you get a $35 overdraft fee for one cent and then they can do it three times. You don't fix it the second day, they give you another $35 overdraft fee. And the third day, they give you another $35 overdraft fee for a total of $105 for one cent over. Now, you could be $10 over 20, but you all you have to do is be one cent over and they get you for $105. Well, that's a, a, a was a $8 billion business. And the federal government said no more. So they mad, mad at that. Uh, they won't let them rob poor folks. Um, so then they put the check cashing places up in the check, check cashing places, you know, they come in and they gouge you because you can't get banking accounts and stuff when you're in, in a certain class. And it's funny because who finances the cash checking places, the big banks. So you can't rob them here. So you rob them there. And it's like, so it's just, it's just systemic at its nature. So here we go. Right. We said, okay, there's 13 million mortgage-ready homebuyers can't get mortgages uh, in America because of the systemic racism. $1.5 trillion uh, marketplace, um, and this is based on a report issued by Citigroup. Homeownership Council of America issued the numbers of, of, homeown of um, 
mortgage ready home buyers, but you you can go to Freddie Mac's site and you you can't you got to kind of know how to read it to see the numbers. Uh, but it's it's pretty clear. It's up to 13 million last I checked, from 10 million to 13 million, so it's growing, um, and they can't get mortgages. So in our business model, we said we got to get rid of the credit score phenomenon because that's the way to deny folks. And we have to build what we built a proprietary mortgage lending platform that will allow folks to enter uh, the mortgage industry. Um, we don't care about being from a social nature. We don't care about the, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars that we can get from robbing people. If we just make a few dollars servicing people, I mean, how much money do you need? You know, and uh, in no world, they need to satisfy stockholders and so on and so forth. And, and, and I guess the more money they make, the better they feel. Um, so and, and they, they they decided to go into private banking, investment banking with the richer clients and don't worry about the population, uh, which upholds the very fabric and foundation of our country. So we said, well, you don't want the market, we'll take it. So if you don't want the market, we'll... so we created I Have a Dream Home and I Have a Dream Home. It, 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 a friend of mine started it. He started as another name. We came up with "I Have a Dream Home" because of the movement uh, connection, and and it was it was like a brilliant idea, the proprietary mortgage lending platform, how to get folks into these mortgages, and so on. Getting rid of the credit scores. He passed away, unfortunately, and then I was left. Okay, what are we gonna do? <laughs> so I, I became the president, the CEO, and I said, yeah, I don't like to fail. So now here I go, I got this company, I got to take it to the next level. So in that next level, we said, okay, how do we do this and create generational wealth? Brilliantly, we went to the security exchange, we registered our offering, we did a regulation CF, which is in relationship to the Jobs Act. President Obama opened up the, uh, signed the Jobs Act into law in 2012, April, 2012, where now you can go raise money from everybody in America to fund these startup companies, maximum $5 million per raise, right? Um, under the regulation CF. So we put a regulation CF, we partnered with uh, CoreCon X, uh, Oscar Joff Joffrey, we partnered with them. They're our, uh, our um, uh, securities um, uh, back office folks because everything has to be compliant with the SEC FINRA regulations. We partnered with Enterprise Bank and Trust, out of Missouri, they're our escrow company. We partnered with um, Andis Capital Group, our broker dealers out of Chicago. So we built a structure to be able to deliver mortgages. Now we have to have capital. We have to have by our business model that we built from the um, investment bankers. We had some folks from Wall Street help us, et cetera. We have to raise $5 million. $5 million allows us to take a portion of that, leverage it up to $300 million through the leveraging uh, mechanisms and get to where else that we can deliver uh, to the public in our first 12 months of operation. But you had to have this $5 million raise in order to be in the game. So we we, we did everything by the book. Um, we dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. We have an open website, Ihaveadreamhome.com, or you can go Ihaveadreamhome.gold, G-O-L-D, and you can make investments. So once we get to the $5 million investment, at $5 million, we said, do we want that $5 million from one person or would we rather have it from, let's say 5,000 folks invest $1,000 in the uh, minority community or double that 
uh, to $10,500, et cetera. What we would have created was a bunch of folks investing into the ownership of this $1.5 trillion marketplace and creating a pillar of wealth. So now we said, let's do that and let's spread the wealth instead of taking one investment. So we built that for folks to come in from the community, to invest in it, to become an owner of it. And then from there, mortgaging, and, and there's just plenty of folks to get mortgages to, as long as you're setting the benchmark. If you have to go to these other companies and they establish their criteria, because people want to partner with us, but your criteria won't let these people in. So we have to have our own, so we can set our own criteria. So we can allow for these folks to come in. So that's kind of where no. we're at in the process. We're raising capital um, to do that. And, and we have a lot of good um, stuff out in the field now. Any, any day now we could be made whole in terms of the raise of the capital, but the door is still open. Um, if you went to IHaveADreamHome.com, you can invest and be a part of the, the um, company and, and that investment is going to grow over time too. So that's another pillar of generational wealth building. And that's why we rather would have it spread out than giving it all to one person. Now, are you guys issuing any type of loans yet or still waiting on the completion of the raise? Still waiting on the completion of the raise. We're not issuing any loans yet. Um, uh, again, we did have folks want to partner and say, well, why don't you issue now and allow us to partner with you? And we said, okay, fine. Let's start issuing now. But when we pulled back the curtain and looked behind the curtain, it was like, that's not going to get these people. We're, we're talking about a segment of the population that nobody's addressing. Those folks that you're talking about in your model, you just want us to go out and bring them to your front door. They they already qualify. Their credit score got to be right. They can't have no deans. They can't have... They're, they're, you just ain't doing enough advertising, so you just want us to be advertisers. You're not creating a model that gets a subset of folks that are being biased and discriminated against. That's our marketplace. So if you change this and change that and change this, well, we can attract that, then we'll we'll bring that to the table in that which you already are set up to do. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, we just don't want to do that. So Now, there's something you mentioned so, that I think is the biggest thing. You said, tell me a little bit about more about this leap of going from 5 million to 300 million. Okay. Because that is a pretty significant leap. And that's, that's exciting. No, no, in order to get to 300 million or warehouse lines of credit, et cetera, et cetera, you have to have structure. You have to have everything ready to go. You have to have your underwriters in place, your staffing, uh, you have to have all your registrations in all 50 states. You have to be ready to, to, to run. You know, one of my mentors, Billionaire Burrow Walk, taught us to crawl, walk, run. So in the crawling phase, you raise the capital. Now, when you get out here in this platform, we can go get $300 million warehouse line of credit right now as we speak. Um, but with the leveraging factor, you, you know, in our business model, if you look at our business plan, we were taking... $1.2 million and we were purchasing a standby letter of credit, which is up for $20 million. So that standby letter of credit for $20 million, which is $100,000 a month over 12 months. If we took that, that um, 
letter of credit, we could leverage that 15 to one. That gives us our $300 million lending capacity. Now, mortgages is simple. What's our basis points on 300, not calculating fees or anything. Our basis points on mortgage is two basis points. So if we get two basis points off of $300 million, that's $12 million in profit per year, just on basis points. So that's all we cared about. We didn't care about all the fees and all that. We cared about the basis points because the basis points allow us to now say somebody, one person gave us that $5 million and we made $12 million a year. We gave them $2 million back every year for that $5 million. That ROI is two and a half years. That's outstanding in the marketplace. But if we gave them back $2 million every year out of a $12 million profit, minus taxes a little bit, we still got millions left that we can now double in size and go from 300 million lending capacity to 600 million. And then of course, once they're out there, you know, you have to mortgage back securitize if you want to attract new capital. And, and that we were kind of working with a gentleman uh, who was working with Kyrie Irving, who was going to work with us on the back end for mortgage backed securities to, to package our and, you know, and bring that into the marketplace on their platform. Uh, so our model is all spelled out on our business plan in detail, but that's how we're going to leverage up to 300 uh, million. Now we're in discussions now with a, with a company who's considering giving us the 5 million and $25 million a month uh, uh, after we get everything structured for 12 consecutive months, which would be our 300 million, because that's all we want to deliver in the first 12 months. To work out all the you know uh, tweaks into to you know walk into the office and find three folks sleeping and say okay we need some new folks <laughs> because we got to deliver this we got to deliver on our promise so that's it in a nutshell how we would leverage up uh, fifteen to one leveraging using a standby letter of credit. So the the company now that you mentioned that's going to be um, giving you the additional you said five to twenty five million dollars a month. That's that's the company that you're leveraging with, correct? Uh, yes and no. Um, they might not require us to leverage. Um, they might not require us to leverage because their mission is to end homelessness. So in their mission to end homelessness, they, they love the fact that we had the end of the rainbow where they had sort of the beginning of the rainbow. So as they transition people through, um, and then they get them ready. They have some place to go because they know they're not going to fit in a traditional uh, mortgage. So they said, well, why don't we work with you and we do this piece and help you prepare this piece so we can keep on moving from A to Z. And we just saw it as a perfect fit. Uh, they didn't ask us for the leveraging factor, but we were building that before we met them. And uh, okay. if, if they don't need it, and then we, we won't provide it. So it's kind of like a, either an investment or a grant that they're providing for a one-year period. Well, they 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 put twenty-five million and we put it out on the streets. They get the bulk of the interest on that. We only get two basis points for managing. Okay, so it's more of an investment. Yeah, there. It's, it's it's like you know, money's sitting everywhere. It's like all these trillions of dollars that folks have in the universe. The money nobody put it in the fire and burnt it up. So it's sitting in mattresses and in banks and in. Uh, Cayman Islands and places where folks hide it and stuff. But that money is sitting there 
And if you just put it into mortgages, you know, it, it, it might not give you the high yield investments that some of these high yield risk investments make, but it's a steady stream. It's almost like a bond. It's like real estate is so secure. I know we had the 2008 collapse, but even those prices went down and went back up, you know, and it's like, there's no more secure investment to real estate. So if you take 25 million and you invest it into real estate and everybody some kind of way got beamed up to outer space and nobody was in these homes anymore, you still own that asset. It still has a value. You still have your money intact. You just have to redistribute it. Now, I did have a question in terms of the the uh, I'm assuming it's, you know, you're dealing with other financial organizations that are allowing you to do the leveraging for those organizations, since they subscribe to the standard, you know, process of uh, financial review in terms of mortgages and whatnot, in terms of what they consider a good mortgage or a bad mortgage. If you're bypassing their normal, you know, systemic processes when you're approving these mortgages, how are you able to then leverage with them? Uh, and have them consider the mortgages that you guys are bringing on board as safe investments to allow for a leveraging? Um, Good question. That's why we have to cast, cast our net wide because yes, there are those who will not, you know, break tradition. Uh, but there's folks that will break tradition and maybe they're not even in America. Maybe they're in Saudi Arabia, you know? And 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 uh, we've already reached out. We've already put in a, a request for a billion dollars from the private investment fund in Saudi Arabia. So uh, we don't have borders on. We don't have borders on our give a damn, you know. So we care. So wherever the money has to come from, now you want to tell me I can't take money to service these people? I, I I'm ready for that fight. I'm not setting up anything insane. I want to service these people. I want to leave a record before I die. And my father made it so clear, and that's the record. It's like somebody gives a damn somewhere. That's our belief. So we just have to cast our net wide enough to be able to hear. And as I said, the group just came to us and said, we love it. And they don't have a problem with it. Uh, and I'm respectfully supposed to get a term sheet out uh, any day now. So if I get a term sheet, and we've already discussed the details, I need the five million. I need the six months to structure properly because I'm a structure guy. So I need to structure properly, you know. And then once we structure properly, we have our underwriters in place and everything. And now you're giving us twenty million dollars a month advertising and telling folks, "Hey, here we are." I mean. Those folks are already there, and that's there's 13 million of them already like knocking on doors, being denied, and that, those aren't my numbers. Those are Freddie Mac's numbers. Now, now one area that I think would be interesting to our listeners, um, considering that you know home ownership and mortgages for home ownership are hard enough as is, but when it comes to getting loans for investments and investment properties and whatnot. That takes on a whole nother level of obstacles that's even 10 times more difficult, you know, for an average person, particularly someone of color yes. who's, you know, trying to get into this for the first time. It doesn't exactly have the initial large amount of, you know, buying capital that's initially needed as down payments and all of this stuff. So is there a plan in place to address people of that nature that are trying to get into the investment market and are trying to build up the capital to invest, but are just finding obstacles? Yes. 
and it's funny you 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 stated it like stated it like that because we had that on our website before that you know this was mortgages and business opportunities and even car loans but we just wanted to we took it off because we just wanted to say here but our mindset is if you can buy, if you have the capital and you're in that subset and you want to get get a car or home or open a business and you have the ability to do so um we want to accommodate that in the future so it's definitely in our mindset to do so or uh, when that those particular um items come on online uh, that that we don't know yet but uh, definitely is part of the future mentality and plan I want to make one comment because there's something that I really am excited about by hearing you is that you think big. You think you're really thinking at a very large scale on how to solve a big problem. And so as long as you're thinking on that same scale, I'll just kind of share a little bit again about my experience as a realtor, mm -hmm. where I'm seeing that there's plenty of people who even can qualify for these mortgages, mm -hmm. but they're still on the lower end of the spectrum of that you know, kind of working class entry level home. But the market dynamics right now are so competitive that they're competing with all cash investors and multimillionaires. And 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 so it's it's a dynamic where even if someone can get pre-approved, they're still not very competitive in the marketplace and they keep getting rejected. So I've had several clients over the last several months who've gotten pre-approved you know, put in offers on homes repeatedly and keep getting beat out. And within a few months, they give up and they say, I can't, I can't compete in this market. I'm going to go out and rent. So as long as I got your attention, I'll put that little bug in your ear. If you can solve the supply, um, the supply problem for affordable housing in the country, that would be great too. Yes. Uh, and, and you got a willing that's, soldier. That's not a big here. ask. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but see, you got see, that's why I love my father so much because he taught us how to see and how to hear. And so when you look back and you peel back that curtain and that onion on what you just just stated, it's like, like what's going on behind the curtain? I, what's going on behind the curtain is that, it, and I experienced it ourselves with some investors that I have wanted to go out. And, and the, the big, the, some of these folks are being financed by big operations. They go buy up these houses. Now, let me tell you who the big operations are. JP Morgan Chase, they're putting a billion dollars into buying up homes and building new homes. Why? Because they want to rent them. But you just said, wait a minute, you just said these folks uh, don't qualify, they're not, and you won't give them a mortgage, which is generally less than rent. But now you're going to build all these homes and rent it to them? It's like, so at the end of the day, when they pay for all these years, they live in a house somewhere, you own the asset and they walk away with nothing but payments. Something's wrong with that. And for a bank to do that and for nobody to say, bank, we're not going to let you do that. Not from a bank's perspective. Now, if you got a private guy and he borrows some money, wants to go buy some property and rent it, that's his business. But for the bank to do that, who's supposed to be delivering mortgage, that's why they told federal governments, we don't want your money no more. We're done um, because they don't want to 
live up to that expectation. They want to deliver rental homes to their class of folks that they partner with. Just look it up. J.P. Morgan Chase billion dollar rental home uh, bonanza. And they want to partner with them, rent those homes out and control the asset and leave these folks paying rent. Simple solution. It's like I have a dream home. I have a dream home. They don't want to rent, uh, uh, give you a mortgage. We want to give you a mortgage. That's why we're casting our net because there's there's somebody out here that gives a damn. We just have to go and find those folks. And we are finding them. They're there like the folks that came up the other day and said, well, we want to do the $5 million and we want to do the 25 because we give a damn. They're building 8,000 Mind small homes for the homeless population as transitional facilities. So now when they grow up and grow out of those homes, they want to come in the I Have a Dream home. Now they got 8,000 8, homes in 250 cities across America right now uh, for that population. They care. They want to end homelessness. So if you're going to do that part and build the homes and so on and so forth and move those folks through, then we got the next phase for them. It makes sense for us to partner. So that's, those folks care. You just have to cash it. The folks that you talking about, the JP, they don't care. They're about dollars and cents. They care for what they care for. That might not be a good way to say it. They care about dollars and cents, bottom line numbers, uh, stockholders, um, if it, smacks in the face of the general population, so be it. Um, but then it's our job to educate, inspire, and lead folks to something other than the stock market. And uh, you, you said it best, screw the stock market. There's other ways to skin this cat, you know? So it's folks like us that's gonna bring these solutions forward and we have to just be in unison and blow our trumpets loud enough for those who have ears to hear. And that's the solution. I love it. I love it. Um, Reverend Dwayne Kwamina, we are so excited to have had this conversation to, to be able to call you uh, a new a new friend. Yes. And um, we are really, we wish you all the success in the world because we know that that's going to mean a lot of lives changed for the better. And so you have two supporters here and, and hopefully um, from from this appearance, you'll, you'll get another handful of supporters um, who, who you were able to share your story with today. Thank you for your time. And really, we we hope to cross paths with you again very soon. Well, let's make it happen. Appreciate you, Alex and Aziz. Appreciate you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to share. Yeah. And keep us posted on those uh, that movie deal. Love <laughs> oh, yeah. to see the film. For sure. <laughs> no doubt about it. We'll come to the red carpet with you. That'll be Looking good. Looking forward to it. God bless you. God keep you. Bless you. Take care. God bless you as well. Take care.